You know exactly what I'm gonna say. I'm in the presence of greatness right now. And you already clicked on this title. Why did you click on the title? Well, because you were looking for yourself on the internet. You were looking for the topic. And this means you have been found. Because if you like a good scam, you have found your homegirl. Listen. If you ever need extra content between gone bed or last meals, you can always check the podcast. New episodes come Mondays and Fridays there as well. So it's just, you know, it's heavy on the content. And if you already came from the podcast onto this channel, you're familiar with how my mind works. That being said, that whenever I go rogue, I lean towards scams. I love me a good scam. I've covered Fire Festival, Anna Delvey, Alicia Head, the one that faked that she was the 9-11 survivor. It's it's just insane. I'm going to drop the most recent scammy episode I've done for the podcast that is on an Italian surgeon called Paolo Maccherini. It has everything. But for right now, I watched Operation Varsity Blues on Netflix, possibly because I obsessed with any scam. I found it to be the best true crime doc out there. I mean, as in on Netflix in particular. Sorry to the Cecil Hotel <laughs> and the Richard Ramirez and the Aaron Hernandez and to all of the other documentaries that Netflix just spins out every single month. But just like with every documentary, they had an angle. And the angle was great, in my opinion, as in it explained the logistics of it, of how it was done, who was involved, did they get punished for it. But here on this channel, in the traditional Gone Bad style, we're going to focus on the protagonist of the story, Rick Singer, who he was, how he came to be involved in the scam, and where is he now? What came as the aftermath? So let's go for it. Let's go for it. Just a quick disclaimer before I dive straight in. If you're here to listen to somebody again and again tell a story about Aunt Becky for like an hour, this might not be the video for you. Every single other article and video though on the internet focuses on that particular story, so you're welcome to check those out. I'm not giving her any more time of day. Possible mention of about 20 seconds. That's what you can expect on, on that particular story. Who was Rick Singer before the scandal and before the expose done in this Netflix documentary? Rick was born William Singer on the 18th of September 1960 in Santa Monica. And the gaps here in his childhood really come to anything and everything that was happening behind closed doors. Meaning, we know about his school life, but we don't know, for example, what interested me from the get-go is why did he move places to go to all these different schools, including, like, primary high school. Because he was born in Santa Monica, but he went to high school in Illinois, in Lincolnwood. We don't know anything up until the period between 1974 and 78, when he attended Niles West High School in Lincolnwood. This is where he played both baseball and football, and the other fellow students are going to describe him as somebody who had outsized personality. In his yearbook, Singer himself wrote that he wanted to be remembered for the outstanding personality he had been given and being able to get along with others. And I think it tells something, because there has been, like, another docu-series called American Greed done on this. I think this was on Oxygen that I read this article. The dean of students at Niles West actually saw him a bit differently. He said, yes, he had this outsized personality, he was quite outstanding, but I remember him more as a guy who was always looking for an angle, always looking for a shortcut to his achievements. 
After Niles West, he moved to Community College in Texas, but then after that, he moved to this Trinity University, because he was accepted there, even though the university had really low acceptance rates, or 29%, and this was in San Antonio. And again, we can't place the reasons why he's actually just moving from one place to the next. At Trinity University, he studied English and PE, and all he really wanted to do is go out there and apply his coaching strategies and actually just coach and teach other students. And for a couple of years, it really seemed like he has been living his dream. By the time he was 29, he got married to his wife, and he was teaching baseball, basketball, softball, at all of these different colleges and high schools, including Encino High School and Sierra College. But you see, for Rick, it wasn't just enough that he was coaching. That's probably why he also coached all of these different sports. But also, after school, he would get bored. He would be like, oh, this PE thing, it just isn't doing it for me. So he would jump in a van and go to different schools in town, sort of scouting for students, you know, checking different people out, talking to admissions officers, being like, hey, do you have somebody who has affinity for sports, potential to get into basketball, into baseball, into softball, into anything that he was coaching already? And then he would, so to speak, to these students, see what they are after, and then in his mind, he would think, how do I get this particular student into a particular college? And by doing that, he said himself, he managed to get the nook and cranny of any place. He just knew how admissions worked now, and he also knew how students' minds worked and what they really wanted out of the experience. A couple of years later, because this really proved that it just wasn't enough for Singer, in 1992, he ventured out to create his own business and to actually focus on the recruiting part of it. So, in 1992, he founded Future Stars College and Career Counseling in Sacramento. From the sources that I have read, this part is kind of vague, but this is what I personally understood. He now founded this company, but on the side, he was working managing call centers in different banks or like mortgage services. And then, because these were developed financial establishments, he would now meet contacts in high places. For example, the owner of this bank or the CEO of the place where he was technically working selling mortgages. And those business owners had kids, so he used his counseling and student coaching company that he has founded to help those kids out and prove himself in that area. But he himself admitted he was more of a coach than a business person, so he ended up selling Future Stars to Hamilton and then moved to actually just work on hiring sort of more like HR for the money store, which was the mortgage company. This seemed to have been a good pathway to take because it allowed him the access to all of these important figures and therefore their children. And he managed to talk the talk and convince a couple of very important people to actually invest in him and get on the advisory board of his new company. So, in 2002, he founds this company, The College Source, and it was providing one-to-one -one guidance for students. It would be juniors, sophomores, seniors, anybody at any stage, and obviously the prices would different for each level. So he charged $1,500 for high school freshmen, $2,000 for sophomores, and $2,500 for juniors or seniors a year. 
And the company employed about a dozen coaches, different part-time staff, different admins. And it was said that between 2002 and 2004, it has coached 724 students and it has reached about like a million in revenue by that point. And as I mentioned, because he was now being backed by the important figures on the advisory board, he had a chair of Stanford. He had a director of Carnegie Foundation and he had a president of Occidental College. This president of Occidental College, Ted Mitchell, actually said something interesting. Well, two things, actually. In his words, Rick had the encyclopedic knowledge of all of the colleges and universities around the US. And the other important part of this equation was that Rick was very personal. He achieved everything that he has achieved because he really listened to both the parents and the children in order to find the right match and get at the heart of what both parents and children really wanted. 2007 comes around and I think at this point he knows, you know, he can actually sustain a business. So now he is probably thinking into the little tangents, like what worked, what didn't, what can actually help him exploit this even more. And he founds this, the Edge College and Career Network, better known as the Key. On the surface, it is, again, coaching, helping students with essay, helping them with exam preparation, and just helping them get to college. But now he's charging a larger fee. Now he charges around $5,000 a year, starting in the ninth grade. So what's different? What is the catch this time? The catch really is that all of his clients here at the key are to be referred. Its website states, the key's clientele is all referral-based. Consequently, the quality of the service provided to many of the world's most renowned families and individuals has provided an incredible foundation for the key to grow its offerings worldwide. Yet again, Rick seems to be successful at yet another business. He's finally doing what he wants. And on the surface, it seems legitimate until this point. That is until around 2011. Why that year, you might ask? Well, a couple of things happened. First of all, his marriage got dissolved around that time. This is important, well, because A, it could have very well been a trigger, but also because of the financial situation at the time that he has portrayed. Because at the time, well, for what Rick came to be, during the divorce proceedings, you might have even called him poor. He earned around $30,000 a month. I know, tragic. They did have different homes in Sacramento and Hawaii, and also their retirement accounts showed that they had around $700,000, but it seemed all legit. Like, it didn't seem like they were hiding or evading tax or anything of that sort at that point. So the divorce might have been one of the reasons. The other reasons for him leaving Sacramento might have been more familiar to, to the Rick singer that we all know and despise. That is, that he kind of started scamming. You see, there were rumors that the students he was helping even at the time, well, that he would kind of fill out the applications for them and just lie on each and every front. So that might have been the reason for him to just have a fresh start, move to Newport, to California, and change up his clientele a bit. 
this move to the Newport Beach was truly the point of no return, because I think this is when Rick realized the importance of the brand and how he had to represent himself, and he realized he wanted to aim high, so he aimed for some of the most difficult universities in the world to get in. These included USC, University of Southern California, Yale, Stanford, UCLA. His job? Easy to help the wealthy parents secure their child's admissions to one of these elite universities. How has he done it? Well, if you think about it, he did have experience, did have multiple other companies that he has founded in the past that have done exactly the same. He gave interviews for different journals. He had this website where, even though, in my opinion, these interviews where he is just kind of standing in like a weird ass room, just explaining what the business is, don't seem like the most professional thing ever. Well, they give great stats. The key claims to have 40,000 clients in 21 different countries, so what's not to believe? To really aid his brand, he also wrote two books. One was called Getting In, and you, you would it's really hard to guess what it's about, but it's about gaining admission into the college of your choice. Mm. And these books also emphasized on the importance for these students to create their own personal brand, which will then assist them to get into these unis. Now we come to the part that this talk on Netflix actually really focused on, and that is the logistics. So how has he done it? So let's say you do want to go into insert the college name of your choice, Stanford, whatever, one of those top ones that I have mentioned a minute ago. If you want to do it without any advisory help, you want to do it without Rick, you study hard, you get the scores, you get in. You got in through the front door. The second option is your parents are wealthy. They can donate money to the university. It's not a bribe, it's just a donation for one of their departments. And then, obviously, I mean, they will kind of put your name in there, they will mention your name, and then it's on the university to decide whether or not they're going to accept you. That is going through a back door and is completely legal. Our boy Rick, though, created a side door, which is a third option. Your parents pay a lot less money than they would have paid if you were to go through a back door. He obviously takes some commission and he guarantees you the admission to the university. And now you're thinking, but why is it so cheap? Like, there must be, like, some catch. Well, the catch is that it's illegal. 100% illegal. Between 2011 and 2019, we have this fully oiled-up plan running. These wealthy parents would pay anything from 200000 to $6.5 million. And these payments could be for a couple of different things. So let's talk about the two main pathways you could choose from. The first pathway is you could choose to bribe the administration. How does that really work? Well, parents would pay the money to Rick, his foundation, the key, would then pay the bribed admin of the school. The third step actually comes in two options. Either somebody will blatantly replace the student and take the test on their behalf, or that particular student is going to come to a designed location for a one-to-one -one test, like it's just them and the supervisor, they submit, they answer whatever the hell they want to answer, they hand it over to that supervisor, and that person is going to correct everything in order for that person to achieve the X amount of points that they need. 
The last step in this process is this admin now that has been bribed, takes your test, you know, they have obviously completed it, you're guaranteed that amount of points, and they emailed your SATs or ACTs tests to the school, they then mark it up, you now have the amount of points needed on this standardized test to get into this college. There's another leeway with this pathway where we could blatantly go up to the parents and ask them, listen, we need your student to claim to have some learning disabilities. Like, tell them to claim autism. Or like, something needs to be signed off by a doctor for them to get the extra time in order for Rick to be able to get them to this facility where they can be alone with his supervisor. This in particular is such an enraging part for people who actually have learning disabilities and just didn't have this option, or well, had the legitimate option, but they didn't cheat. But what I would like to know, if anybody went through the American schooling system, can you drop the comments below? Because this is the part that I found so fascinating in the documentary, because I don't think this would have ever happened in the UK. I came here when I was 16, so I did, like, baccalaureate, which is the equivalent of A-levels, which is the two years before uni. So all of the exams you do, there's no such exemption where you go by yourself to do it, like, in a whole, like, one person, one supervisor. This, this is just absolutely... There's no such thing. Even for people that got extra time, it's cool, everybody else leaves, you stay behind, and then... It's just like you and other people that have learning disabilities. Never like one person and just somebody supervising. So is this like a common thing? Because this is not even like, oh, it's in a testing facility, it's this kind of environment. It's like somebody dispatches in the middle of nowhere. And like, it's just you in a classroom with somebody else. I was so flabbergasted by this part of the documentary. I was like, does this... Like, how did nobody see the problem if this is, like, a commonality that happens every year? The other scheme that Rick was running was bribing the coaches directly. So the steps here are the parents paid money into the key. Then the key would take that particular donation and donate it to that college's athletics program or a particular coach. By this point, Rick would have already obviously developed a relationship with his coaches. So this coach would take the student's profile and go to like the admissions office and be like, hey, this is such a great match, look at their achievements, look at like their pictures, which would all be edited in Photoshop. They've done everything from like photoshopping people's faces onto like athletes' bodies to photoshopping the environment, you know, like, somebody would take a picture of you just throwing a ball in the pool, like, they represented for the water polo admissions, and then they would be like, no, you would actually need to be lower or higher in the pool. Like, the communications that happened during this documentary are wild. So this pathway, if you wish, is even more wrong somehow on so many different levels. When it comes to this second pathway, one part that I found really interesting was I looked like, okay, so, like, let's say this person is guaranteed an admission, right? They're in. Like, aren't they to show up for the practice, right? Because they're suddenly playing this sport that they have never played in their life. The answer is no. And... <sighs> And the answer is no, because, well, according to Rick and, like, how this was orchestrated, the student was never to show for this practice, but also most of the students wouldn't have known that this is how they got in, because the scam mostly fell on the parents. So the parents would be like, no, no, just pose, 
doing this and the students either never inquired or just knew that this was kind of, you know, how they're getting in, but that they're never going to actually play the sport in question. Now, let me briefly touch on something, because it is so disgusting, and this documentary doesn't really focus on it, and that is, of course, that he registered the key to be a charity, so that he can be exempt for most of his tax, the way that so many companies do. But what I find so disgusting in this particular case is that in the tax documents, this charity was said to be helping underserved Auckland school children and the needy Cambodians. So in order for him to loan the money and funnel these bribes to coaches, he was literally pulling the I'm helping children in Asia. Which is just disgusting, because to a certain degree you're like, okay, at least it isn't hurting anybody. But when you think about it on a bigger scale, it is hurting so many people, so many students that actually studied in the first place. But also the way that he is dealing with it, just to be able to, like, funnel these bribes and, like, launder this money and evade tax and evade getting caught, it's just disgusting on, like, a whole different level. So this non-profit tax-exempt status helped him for these donations to be counted as tax deductions. Where we left Rick Singer is he is running this successful scam, he is getting students into college, everybody seems happy, he is getting the money, wealthy students are getting into college, their parents seem to be living their dreams through their children. End of story, right? Goodbye, I'll see you next week. No, you might be wondering, how do we know that this even happened? How did he even get exposed? Because everybody seems to be winning. It's a win-win situation. Again, I know that all of the students that have been pissed off by this are not winning. But I'm referring to his business, to his little scam, where the parents, the children, him, are winning. So, what went wrong? Why would anybody snitch? Well, you see, the FBI was actually investigating a completely different fraud when Rick's name just popped up. It wasn't actually Rick's name first. The luck really, really ran out on this guy. The FBI was investigating a guy called Maury Tobin. He was one of those stockbrokers who was selling stocks in, like, highly inflated prices. So they're looking into Tobin for that fraud, and then they arrest him, they bring him to court, and the prosecutor actually says, no, actually, this guy isn't just guilty of this. We have actually managed to find out that Tobin is bribing a Yale coach to get his daughter admitted to Yale. So the judge is like, well, what the hell is is that all about? Like, can somebody give me some proof on that? So the prosecution goes back, they're like, no problem. Let's consult back with the police, with the FBI. We need to tap this guy's phone. And, well, his defense team just realized, like, he needs to start snitching. He needs to meet with this Yale coach to be wired during this meeting and to just fess up. Otherwise, he's gonna face, like, years and years in jail. The police puts a wire on him and they arrange for Tobin to meet this coach named Rudy Meredith in a hotel room and Rudy sings like a bird. He tells exact digits of how much Tobin bribed him, but also he kind of gives some involuntary information as well. He mentions one name that is familiar to all of us, 
Rick Singer. So the FBI goes off after listening to that wiretap, being like, who's that? Cool. Let's just check this Meredith's bank records, because, you know, those are gonna show if this guy actually exists, like, if there's some scheme going on. And boy, did they discover a scheme. They discover regular payments, amounting to around $860,000 in the last three years. And they all kind of seem to match the admissions line. Now, as you know, with all of these true crime cases, it's just a question on who is going to snitch on whom first. So the FBI goes now to Meredith, they play that little recording, and they tell him, cool, you're gonna cooperate to bring this man down? We're gonna put a wiretap on your phone, you're going to call our boy Rick and get him to confess. Rick gets caught on the phone. So the FBI goes to his house and they're like, listen, we have plenty of proof. Also, we're gonna seize your company's bank accounts right now, so we definitely have too much here. So your options are either you're going to face around 65 years in prison and pay over a million as a fine, or you're going to help us get every single one of these parents. And this, ladies and gents, is how Operation Varsity Blues began. It was called that, well, it could have been called that just because of the terms varsity and blues, which refer to athletic teams and the awards that they get. Or, as I've read in different sources, it is named that because of the 1999 movie. And in this movie, I just watched a trailer, James Wanderbeek is the main character, Paul Walker is also in the movie, Rest in Peace, Paul. So James Wanderbeek kind of takes over Paul Walker, who gets like a knee injury, to get on this team and to enroll into college. And it's also all about like the parental pressure and somebody living through their child and like these manipulative coaches and how important it is for them to get this child admitted into college. Because again, it reflects great on that coach because now he has coached X amount of students that have entered the prestigious elite schools. He had to do two things, right? Well as in he had to be wired at all times or just have all of the calls recorded and then the FBI was transcribing them. But obviously he had like older clients, like all of these that they had to prosecute and he had to get in touch with them and just be like, hey, actually like my firm is getting audited at the moment. So just want to make sure we're on the same page and you just, if anybody questions you, you know, that you say we haven't done X, Y, Z, and then he gets them to admit that they have actually done X, Y, Z. Or he had new clients. So people were honing on into that, like who is still taking the bait and who is trying to get their kids and to bribe these coaches right now when they were investigating. What I find interesting in particular when it comes to Rick and his attitude here, and I will briefly touch upon this now and then kind of conclude with it as well, and it is the spirit that he went into this. I'm reluctantly going to compare our boy Rick to like Tekashi 69, which is another snitch case that I have investigated. But I can't fail to notice how he got into this with the same passion. Because it's one thing, like, okay, I have to snitch to save my own life because otherwise I'm facing, like, life in prison and 
need to pay up like the money that I might or might not have. Like I understand he's saving his ass, but there are snitches that are a lot less willing. There are people that will still try to skedaddle and like avoid all these different loopholes. They'll be like, well, no, I don't want to like do it with these clients or like, you know, they're gonna try to hide different books, try to hide like different names from view. Rick was just like as immersed as he was when he was doing the coaching and scamming through his two different pathways. I just find that to be interesting because usually when like somebody just snitches, they literally just snitch like the amount of details that are necessary because they know that it's not going to look great on them. For months, this operation included Singer calling his parents, meeting up with them in person, being wired, the FBI transcribing these calls. That is until the March 2019, when they just started making arrests. And the story broke out for the public to see. And ever since then, it's just been like court proceedings, trials. A lot of people still haven't been charged. So let's briefly talk about the consequences. And I'm using inverted commas here, because you would have thought the story of this size, this volume, the effort that went for him to actually launder the money, bribe all of these people, make all of these connections in the first place, you would have thought the consequences are going to be grand as well, like people photoshop their heads onto other athletes' bodies, and then you actually hear the consequences at the end of this Netflix documentary, or some of them that I'm gonna tell you now, and you're like... Oh, okay. I guess that should motivate me to a certain degree to get rich. I don't know what, what should be my conclusion out of all of this. So the federal prosecutors charged more than 50 people. Let's first talk about the parents. The harshest sentence a parent has gotten to actually spend in jail is nine months. They all got like months or weeks in jail and some money to pay up. The guy that got nine months in jail was former CEO of Pacific Investment Management called Douglas Hodge. And he also had to pay around $750,000 and complete 500 hours of community service. He got nine months in jail. He got a harshest sentence because he was bribing Singer for a decade. For around a decade. Because Singer got first his daughter into uni and then his son. And also, if you remember, like, every single little bit that he does has a payment attached to it, whether it is one test, second test, coaching, one-to-one -one coaching, the photoshopping. Nine months for over a decade of just scamming his way around. Lynette from Desperate Housewives, or Felicity Huffman, was sentenced to 14 days in jail after she admitted she paid 15000 to have her daughter's SAT answers falsified as part of the scandal. She was also fined 30 k and was asked to do, like, 250 hours of community service. In her case, I think her daughter was actually pissed and was said to be unaware and kind of asked her, like, why did you doubt me? Like, I actually studied for this. Why did you have to, like swindle your way around this, but this is minor compared to what some have done. Massimo Giannulli, Lori Laughlin's husband, served around five months in prison, and he also had to pay half a million dollars. When I was researching this today, uh, I read he was released out of prison yesterday, so he served his time. Lori Laughlin herself was sentenced to two months. She also finished her sentence, 
and she was also ordered to pay 150,000 fine and do 100 hours of community service. I at least hope that those community service hours need to be done in public, that they need to be out there like collecting garbage or something on the streets. Just because even the prisons that they got to serve in like had freaking yoga and spine, it's just, it's not a prison, it's not. This is still ongoing, so some of the parents still haven't been charged. Out of 34 parents, only 21 have been sentenced to date, and 14 out of those pled guilty. Just a quick sideline here, because I'm looking and observing this as the outsider, because I've never been to the US, never studied there, have nothing to do with like either the American justice system or the American university system. So really, to just give some fresh eyes onto this, it's weird to me how these parents went from bribing one system to bribing another. And this another one just seems to be the justice system. It just seemed like they went from one side door onto the next. I don't know what that shows about the place, that you can bribe your way through literally anything, even if it is justice system and prison. It doesn't come as a surprise, it's not like news to anybody, but it's just interesting as an analogy to think about, okay, so you can bribe your way through university side door and you can also do the same when it comes to justice system. And to think that some of them have actually gotten like a slap on the wrist in terms of the fine that they are paying. Some of them have paid less as a fine to get out of this mess and never serve in prison that they have paid to actually bribe to universities and bribe Rick Singer. As for the students, they haven't been charged, but a lot of them have been either forced to leave or just immediately rejected from universities, depending, again, at what stages they have been. Most students, even if it was their last year, the universities would just let them go because of this scandal, because of how it reflects on universities. There are a lot of lawsuits going on for most of these unis as well in terms of angry parents doing universities on behalf of their children because their children did have the same grades, but hey, they didn't pay like half a million dollars for the child to get in. But what's interesting and what I would like to know again in the comment section is what do you think about the students that actually managed to stay? Because I don't really have much of an opinion here, because there are students who have been enrolled in these colleges for about, let's say, two years. They have managed to prove that all of the grades that they got while at uni were done diligently, they were their own grades, they didn't scam through it, and they, in some instances, have actually even played the sport. Like, they actually got onto the team, like, showed some athletic affinities, and have continued to play for that team. Because in those cases, I mean, Again, did they or they did not know that their parents let them in? There's a lot of like ethical questions around that topic. But do they deserve at that point if they have proven that they have done everything legitimately when there to suffer for what their parents have done? I don't know. You let me know what you think about that in the comments. What about the consequences for the colleges themselves? Well, when it comes to coaches, a lot of them have either been asked to resign or in more instances they have just been fired and let go immediately, straight away as this scandal broke out. 
I'm really interested in your opinion when it comes to one coach. That's the one that was mentioned in the documentary heavily, the sailing coach who worked for Stanford. Because John Vandermoor was the first one to be sentenced. He got only one day in prison, but he was also sentenced to two years supervised release and also has to pay a $10,000 fine. I just find this one interesting because from the way that I got it from the documentary, it seemed kind of like he was just approaching these admissions officers, just saying, hey, a donation has been made, but hasn't actually been like involved, involved. He seemed like the most innocent one and got the harshest punishment, probably because he just isn't as rich as the others, unfortunately. Remember the coach Rudy Meredith? He's a freaking joke. He resigned the position in 2018, saying it was time to explore new possibilities and begin a different chapter in his life. He resigned giving the most basic reason out there that everybody gives him, like, their resignation letter. He still hasn't been charged. He's one of those that is still awaiting sentencing, but he pled guilty because did he have any other option? No. In response to the scandal, NCAA, the athletic association that's also the chief governing body for college sports, announced that they are making plans to review the allegations in order to determine the extent to which their rules might have been violated. And I've read that there are different senators that are planning to, like, make these donations taxable if the parent plans for their child to attend the college or if they're already attending. So, basically, they are going for, like, a backdoor for them to at least pay a tax, which I'm like, that's not a solution. I just don't think that anything is going to come here as a consequence for any of these colleges. But I'm interested in your opinion, like, as to... Do you still have the same respect for any of these colleges for allowing this? Because there's no secret that Backdoor has probably been there for, like, centuries. They get donations, they need them to make these athletic clubs, and like, all of these sorority, whatever, fraternity clubs happen and to fund all of these facilities. I get it and I don't get it, because then what is the point of these elite colleges in the first place? Why is there so much pressure, such status for somebody to get into it when everybody now knows that a lot of these places will be rigged and you might just be sitting in class looking at the others being like, no, there's no chance this person got in by themselves. Like, first of all, they don't look like they want to be here, which is the case with so many of these students that got in that way. And second of all, they just don't seem like to have the grades, so they're the ones suffering as well. I'd like to know what you think if you are either immersed like or at different unis or have ever applied or are currently studying at any of these universities and like what is your overview? Because to me, as an outsider, it just seems as a vicious cycle of nobody really winning. The parents spent all of this money for these children not to be happy in the first place, not to really want to be there. It just seems like parents living through children and somebody finally paid the price. As for the protagonist of this story, what happened to our boy Rick? Well, he is one of those people that still hasn't been sentenced. I read in one account that his sentencing is gonna come around 19th of June. He still might be facing the same prison sentence, 65 years. The FBI still hasn't decided, like, as to, you know, how much they're gonna reduce it by. But let's be honest, is Rick really going to get some substantial amount of time in jail? Most probably not. 
His lawyers have said that he is making plans to change his life for the future, so he enrolled in the Doctorate of Psychology, but then I've heard that he planned to finish that by 2021, 22. I don't know how, if he plans to be in prison at the same time. But sure, Rick has his plans, but then he dropped out of it. So, yet again, the history repeats itself. I mean, are you surprised with this? He only managed to get these kids over the threshold. He didn't have any plans on how they should actually remain at this college, funny enough that he had just the admissions part figured out, but didn't plan through anything, anything else, including how this legitimate business might come back to bite him in the ass. So he didn't establish no code, no nothing with any of these coaches, with any of these bribed officials, with any of these parents. That is the story of Rick Singer. And the last comment that I had to make on this guy, remember how I said I'm going to come back to this? And that is that I haven't seen an account of events until now showing how quickly loyalties can change for a person when you're disloyal in the first place. Because if Rick's story showed us one single thing, it is that he is the type of person that is only loyal to the hand that feeds him. And if that hand also appears not to get him in jail in the first place, all the better. And if it also happens to bring him some level of excitement, some level of adrenaline rush, again, great. If it is just him doing like a psychology degree to show his character, that won't work, right? That just won't work. It just needs to be something as excitable. And I'm sorry to say, but you're six years old now, Rick and you, you messed up. It's all going just downhill from here. I think there was enough excitement in this story, enough scamming, for you never to be able to do that. We've seen it multiple times. Go listen to the Fire Festival story, Billy McFarland. He literally wanted to start... Oh God. The guy went from one scam to the next. He wanted to start podcast from jail. He literally has no chill. Anna Delvey. She, again, plans to, like, run movie deals, get the Netflix deal, again, scam as soon as she's out. There's just no stopping when it comes to these people, because they just live off this excitement. They live off of it. But that's the story about Rick Singer, and that's it for today. <laughs> I have a feeling this is longer than I intended to be. I went off the tangent a couple of times, and now I'm gonna leave you probably some outtakes from the story, and I will see you next week. Bye, guys! Somebody explain to me why am I in a shirt? Why am I dressed the way I dressed at the beginning of the uni, like the first week, and then I gave up on it? Why would I even... Who was I trying to impress at uni? Listen, this is like an immigrant story. I actually used to go to uni and be like, no, I need to impress these people, and then I gave up after a week and just started wearing hoodies. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. You know what I'm gonna say. I'm in the presence of greatness. Welcome. <laughs> Idiot. If you ever need extra content between my videos on this channel, check out my podcast. <laughs> Why I'm trying to sell shit is fucking idiotic. And if you came from By All Means Necessary Podcasts to this channel, you're value. <laughs> I can't do it today. Stop it. I have boogies. No? Okay. Okay. This is your face, yeah? <laughs>
This is where he played both baseball and football, and his compañeros. <laughs> this is where he played both. Shit. This is where he played both baseball and football, and his friends and pupil students. What are they? We don't know anything before the period between 74 and 78 when Nick attended. His name is Rick, idiot. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Why is your fucking nickname Rick from William? Okay, shut it. Shut it.